So welcome to episode 55 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in Los Angeles. I am Nathan Fox in, where did you say you are, Ben? Some, somewhere outside of San Jose? San Isidro, I San believe Isidro. is how it said. Uh, yeah, it's just it's like 45 minutes away from San Jose, Costa Rica. Awesome. How's that going so far? Uh, it's good. We had uh, some storms when we first got here, but now it's just sunny all the time. Um, which I think is what it's normally like here, at least in the dry season. So the weather is impossible to argue with. I heard it was really cold back where I'm usually at in D.C., um, so I'm glad we missed that. Cool. And we also are lucky to have with us in Santa Barbara, Anne Levine. Anne, how's it going? Great, guys. Thanks for having me. I'm going to run through uh, just quick kind of agenda items We're going to talk today about meditation and how it can help you on not just the LSAT, but law school admissions and in life. We're going to talk about uh, a story in the Wall Street Journal that Arizona is now accepting the GRE instead of the LSAT, or I guess they're accepting both, but it's a new trend. Some law schools are now accepting the GRE. We need to talk about whether that's uh, the end of a career for me and Ben. (laughs) Um... We have a bunch of listener questions. Please remember that you can always email us, uh, help at thinkinglsat.com. You can also tweet me. I'm at infox, and Ben is at strategy prep. And you might as well give out your contact information at the top. At Anne Levine. I'm on Twitter right now. At Anne Levine. She's live tweeting the recording <laughs> of the podcast. Great. Well, Anne, you came to my LSAT class recently in San Francisco, and uh, I was laid up, so I wasn't even able to be at the class. I heard nothing but great things about it. You talked to my LSAT class about meditation. You want to tell the listeners a little bit about that? Sure. I talked about meditation in terms of mindfulness. Um, I think meditation, sometimes people who don't know that word think, okay, Anne suddenly jumped off the deep end after 15 years in law school admissions. But Meditation is just part of taking time to be aware of what you're doing, which should influence how you're doing it, basically, in my own definition. And so it was really fun, actually, to come talk to your students this time and not just talk LSAT, not just talk personal statements and letters of rec, but to talk to them about keeping in mind why they're doing what they're doing. And we did. I did take them through a little breathing exercise at the beginning and the end to show them how Hopefully, they felt a little more able to focus when they took 60 seconds to regroup and calm down. And I would imagine that that would greatly improve any the situation for anyone dealing with testing anxiety or just general pressure uh, going through this process. We've talked about meditation a little bit on the show before. I know Ben has meditated. How's your meditation practice going, Ben? Oh, it's not good at all. I've totally fallen (laughs) off the wagon, um, if that's the right term. The thing is that I'm curious, Anne, what you are suggesting people do when they meditate because a lot of the meditation that I read about, experimented with, and so on involved just trying to not think about anything, to sort of focus on breathing and to sort of relax, which has all been very helpful. But I'm also curious if you're saying more than that, saying thinking about what you're doing, so you actually are trying to think about something in particular. So that's a really, really good point, Ben. I think so. I am not a meditation expert, law school expert, yes, meditation expert, no. 
But I am a certified yoga instructor. And one thing that we talk a lot about in yoga is having an intention and being mindful of your intention and coming back to that intention, uh, which enriches what you get out of yoga or life or whatever you want to apply it to. Now, I think that, uh, for example, I just wrote an article a few weeks ago in Above the Law, which I think is how Nathan got the idea that we should all talk about this, where I do feel in talking with hundreds and perhaps thousands of law school applicants over the last couple of years that sometimes people are driven by motivations that are not healthy for their success and or for their lives. And I see that coming, for example, from parental pressure from pressure to go to a school that will impress people or to go to law school just to impress people, that they're not really taking time to think about their motivations. And I think if we take time to think about our motivations, that even if the motivations don't change, we'll be able to better articulate them to ourselves and, in fact, in our law school applications. And I also think there's an application here on LSAT prep. I think that the number one thing I hear is, oh, I have testing anxiety. I struggle with standardized tests. Well, that's that's a mantra people tell themselves that doesn't lead them to success, but rather the opposite way, that they're leading themselves into this self-fulfilling prophecy of being anxious about a test, not performing well on a test. Now, I'm not saying just thinking about that can change that for people who legitimately struggle with standardized testing, but I do think that what we the message we tell ourselves is quite influential in how we handle a task or how we approach a task. And I think if you take time, whether it's meditation, breathing exercise, to be calm before you take a practice LSAT, it's not so much that you're thinking about, okay, here's how I'm going to approach the test, but you're thinking about calm. You're thinking about your motivation rather than thinking about, oh God, I've got to get above a 160 on this practice test, or I'm never going to get above a 165 in June, you know? Yeah. So one thing, I don't know if this is what you're trying to say but it is one thing that I kind of heard, and that is when you're talking about thinking about your motivations, I feel like you're sort of saying maybe think about it to the point where you are honest with yourself and almost come to terms with what's actually driving you and whether that's something that you want to accept or maybe move away from. Because I do feel like a lot of anxiety towards the test, toward law school is maybe grounded in something that's not something we really care about, but we just have never even faced what that is. I, I think that's exactly what what goes on in a, not in every circumstance, of course, but in a lot of it I, and in a lot of people's cases, I think, for example, I have a client right now who I really hope is not listening, who is a yogi. She is very, um, very in tune with meditation, all of these things. And she is really struggling with the fact that she didn't get into a school of a certain name, even though she knows that's not a place where she would be happy. And we actually had a little yogic conversation about, which I don't do with all of my clients, but with her, I could connect on that level where we talked about, you know, maybe her ego was driving some of her motivation. And maybe when she gets back from this big world traveling trip, she's on this spring, she might decide that law school isn't for her anyway. You know, maybe if she, if what she really cared about was telling people she was going to a certain law school, maybe maybe she wasn't following the right um, part of her brain. Maybe she was following her ego rather than what would truly be the right next step for her. And I think that that's a continuing process to figure out. Yeah, yeah. I think we can be motivated too of of a fear of that failure, but it's sort of like why do we fear? 
failing getting into the to the best law schools or whatever. Um, I think I think the only reason for that is not so much that I'll never make a career for myself or I'll never be, you know, Supreme Court justice or what have you, but more, you know, what are people thinking of me? You know, am I disappointing my parents? Am I disappointing my friends? All of my friends who work with me at the law firm are all going to fancy law schools. I'm not. Like, I think that it, in grade school, I have kids who are in grade school. I think you'll connect with this, Ben. But they compare themselves to each other a lot, right? Mm-hmm. They measure themselves against each other. And I think we never really outgrow that. And I think that this is another way that people do it. No, I'm not saying these are the only motivations that people want to go to law school. But I do hear in a lot of people that, you know, especially actually people applying this late in the cycle for the current cycle, um, I feel that they're feeling pressure from parents to go ahead, go straight to school, get into it, or they're feeling pressure from other parts of their lives and not really taking time to reason through whether this is the best possible uh, direction. So how does meditation help to avoid these kinds of patterns then? what, What is it actually doing for these people that have this problem? So, well, I can, I can really only speak in my own case or, you know, my daughter's cases and seeing them. But I would say for me, it really does improve anxiety. So my triggers may not be that I'm applying to law school. That wouldn't make me nervous in the least. I'd actually be pretty psyched. For me, it would be, you know, something like flying, right? Love to travel, hate airplanes, but I don't want to drug myself. (laughs) So I use meditation to keep myself calm. I know that if my breath is slow, my heartbeat will be slow and I'll feel less anxious. And I think that that's a great tool for anyone feeling anxiety. Anyone who tells you they're going through the law school admission process or LSAT prep without feeling some anxiety is lying. So I don't see how, uh, you know, everyone feels it somewhat, (laughs) somewhere on the scale. I would say that anytime you take time to just breathe slowly, calm your heartbeat, clear your mind a little bit, you know, it, it can only help you. For example, we've all heard how you know, before you start a project or get down to work, you should clean off your desk, right? You shouldn't like study or start to write a paper with a cluttered desk. And actually, before we got on this call, that's the first thing I did is I put all my, I've been working on my taxes today, joy. I've been piling up all that stuff. I put it away before we spoke. I didn't want to speak to you with papers all over the place. You know, I think that this is a little bit of what meditation does for us is it cleans out the cobwebs, put things in, puts things in piles or in a box so that right then in the present, we're not thinking about those things. We're just taking a moment to clear our minds. And then when we come back to, you know, opening our eyes, we're ready to tackle something. And uh, for me, that that's very useful. Would you say that meditation helps you to notice that your desk is cluttered? Oh, gosh, yes. I mean, I think most people meditate, they just don't know to call it meditation, right? I hmm. think they do. I think um, it doesn't have to be sitting in a lotus position with perfect quiet and spa music in the background. Like, I think most of us, whether it's while we're walking or something, if we're not distracting ourselves, right, if we're not on the treadmill watching TV or talking on the phone while we're walking the dog, most of us, like at those times when we shut off the devices and we just let our brain go, right, we might be tempted to follow the thoughts in our brain or we might just say, okay, I'm not going to think about that right now. I'm going to push it aside. I mean, those exercises of controlling our thoughts, I think is really what it's about is we are in control of those thoughts. And if you feel like your thoughts or your to-do list are controlling you, that's that's the person who really needs to take time and push those thoughts aside. It sounds so weird, but it, it's very effective. Yeah, that's how, I mean, I've only dabbled barely, but it, it, it just helps me to know when I'm doing it regularly at all. And I'll, I'll only do like five minutes here, five minutes there. But if I do do it, then 
in between sessions, just for the rest of the day or for the rest of the week, I find myself, I just notice what I'm thinking about. And I notice, it helps me to notice, like, well, dude, you're being all anxious about this situation that's really just not that bad. Why are you letting this thought just stick in your head and control the way you're feeling about things? Because maybe you could just notice it and let let go of it. Is that it? I, I think that's exactly it. Okay. I think that's exactly it, is recognizing what's causing us stress or anxiety, labeling it maybe, you know, maybe actually labeling it and then saying, oh, well, if that's all that is, it's that I'm feeling anxious that this person is upset with me or I'm feeling time pressure because um, my parents want me to go on this thing or my girlfriend wants me to go on this thing, but I really, you know, feel like I need to do something else. It's that pull. It's recognizing where you're feeling the pull and then you can take action about it, right? I mean, that that's the whole point. Yeah. I have this idea in my head that I'm a bad test taker, maybe because I didn't do as well as I would have liked on the SAT. And then now I'm going to continue to tell myself that I'm a bad test taker every time I sit down and do the test. And you know what I tell people who say that to me? I tell them, the SAT was a long time ago. You were 17. 16. Do you still do anything today the same way you did when you were 16 or 17? I sure as hell don't. I wish I did. And even the 20, well, okay, let's not go there. But, you know, (laughs) but really, I mean, I don't want to do anything the same way I did it as a senior in high school. True. I've had 25 ish years since then, but even in five years, even if I think back to how I was in my early twenties, I didn't do anything how I did when I was a senior in high school. So the, the LSAT's no different. You're not a senior in high school anymore. You've had college. You maybe have had more than college. You've had life experience. Like you're in charge of your own life now. I mean, you will handle this test differently, whether you're naturally brilliant at standardized tests or whether you struggle with them legitimately. It's just, it's not a huge leap to reprogram yourself to from, from the really destructive, I'm bad at tests to a much more positive, much more productive I am getting better at tests. I can do this. Let's be simple. I can do this. I can figure this out. Right? Yeah, I'm getting better at it. Yeah. Every day it's a little easier. Yeah, whatever it is. And uh, I think that mindset counts for a lot in life. You know, um, I have these law school expert mugs, you know, and on this I send them to all my clients last year. And on, on I, there's this great Abraham Lincoln, or it's attributed to Abraham Lincoln quote. Things may come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle, right? I mean, that's a favorite quote of mine, right? That I think it was even like my senior quote in my yearbook in high school. Like, I mean, think about it. Like, you don't have to be the smartest. You don't have to be the best at standardized tests, but you're going to hustle. You're going to work for it. Same with law school admissions generally, I think. I think the people who hustle, who really pay attention to the process, who really think about what they're doing, who do the optional essays diligently, you know, those are the people who are going to get ahead, whether they're naturally brilliant at standardized tests or not. But you got to have that mindset of, I'm just going to hustle. I'm just going to do this. Fantastic. I think that's a really excellent point. I mean, I feel like a lot of times people look at the success of others, whether it's fellow test takers or whatnot, and it seems easy to them, but they don't realize how much effort they're putting into it. Or, you know, when you write something or, and you've written a couple books and Nathan, you have two. I'm sure you've rewritten a lot of that stuff. You have to try and then just try again and try again. And then it starts to become easier. But 
people give up too easily because they've self-sabotaged themselves into thinking that they're not good at whatever. Yeah, a guy just called me today. Uh, he applied to law school last year, didn't get in anywhere. He's reapplying now, wants my help. And I said to him, well, can I ask you why, why you're calling me on February 23rd, right? Well, deadlines are in March. It's okay. Is that when you applied last year? Yes. Okay. Have you heard of the term rolling admissions? No. Mm. Okay. And then he says to me, if I don't get in this year, I'm just never applying again. I said, okay, well, let's put a pause on that because, <laughs> you know, I said something to him about how, you know, if you haven't given something hundred percent and done the research necessary to understand how to do something well, and then you say, but if it doesn't work out, I'm not doing it, then you're not giving yourself any chance whatsoever. You know, this is a person I said to him, I'm not going to help you right now. Go read my book, spend three hours and $14 reading my book before you start paying me for con consulting, you know, read the book, know what you're getting yourself into, understand the admission process and then work it, do your best to hit all those notes, but don't, you know, just say, Oh, you know, F it. I'm just going to throw in applications again. If I don't get in, I'm not having this career. Like that's to me, someone who doesn't want it all that badly and who will blame the process rather than himself. And someone who doesn't know what lawyers do and has no idea what they're getting themselves into. I mean, if that's the way you're going to treat this process, then what kind of a lawyer are you going to really turn out to be? Yeah, I think also some people don't have, you know, uh, I wouldn't extrapolate it that far because I do think, I don't know about this person's case who called me today, but some people, you know, it, it just come from backgrounds where they, they haven't had exposure to these processes before, and that's fine. But it doesn't mean that one day, once they master the processes, they won't do great. But they have to know that they, what they don't know and go learn it. Cool. Yeah, I, I would just say I think that's probably good on mindfulness. I would say if people want to find out more, there's so many cool resources online. Actually, I have a cool app that I use. Headspace. Yeah. Yeah, so I've heard of that one, and I, I would also recommend an app called Calm, C-A-L-M. But he I've heard Headspace mentioned a million times, and I've wanted to try it out. Headspace is really cool, and the guy has a really nice like British accent, so it's very pleasant to listen to. And it basically takes you through 10 steps, and the first 10 steps are totally free, and you just sit there, and he sort of guides you like – sit up and just let this go. And if a thought comes in, do this. And, you know, when I was doing yoga teacher training, basically the, the day we spent uh, on meditation was very much like, close your eyes, thought comes into your mouth, into, into your head, just identify it, say, oh, there's a thought and move away from it. And just say, oh, oh, wait, there's a thought, you know, and just move away from it. And that's a good process. And just come back to your breath. Like, oh, oh, wait, that's a thought. Inhale. Like just to get yourself sort of noticing and controlling what's going on in there. And I think Headspace does a good job of that too, just really simplifying it. And it's a fun thing to try. Yeah, I, I like the Calm app a lot. Same thing. Um, it's, a, it's a lot about just noticing the thoughts rather than trying to control them, or at least as a first step to just notice them. Yeah. I really like the metaphor of cloud passing across your sky. And it's just sort of like, oh, there's that thought. Yep. Mm -hmm, that's a thing. Okay. And then there it goes. And I, I yeah, there even, it goes. Okay. Right. And even if it's like some, you know, bad, scary thing that might control your behavior, you, you learn, oh, yeah, this comes in every once in a while and it stays for however, whatever long, and maybe it'll just pass. And then I don't have to make yeah. a bunch of stupid decisions because of this weird thought that comes through. Yeah. Here's my example. So this morning I, I woke up and I got in the car to go to the gym and I'm thinking to myself, how upset I was about some stupid thing that happened yesterday, right? And then I stopped myself and I went, what good does it do for me to keep thinking about how upset this thing was yesterday yep. that has nothing to do with my day today, 
right? Nothing to do with what I have to do today. Nothing to do with anything. And I could just label it and push it away. And then it didn't impact my mood at the gym. It didn't impact the rest of my day. But I think in olden days, I would have just kept that thought process going in my head like, boy, that really pissed me off. And I would have thought about it a lot all day. So to bring this to 100% concrete LSAT example, many times students will struggle with the logic games and they'll, they'll have very high hopes that, hey, I have to do really well on the logic games section in order to do well on this whole LSAT. But logic games is only one section of the test and logic games might be section one or two and maybe it goes okay but not great. It is so easy to let that mediocre performance then control the rest of your performance for the rest of the test. You know, section three, section four, section five, those are mm-hmm. not logic games. And exactly. It, it's just easy to let that control the rest of your day. Cool. Okay. Well, I think we covered that pretty well. I just would add one thing in terms of like integrating this into LSAT preparation. When people are studying for the test, I would encourage them to spend five minutes meditating before they start to study. Because whenever I do it, and I haven't been doing it a lot lately, but whenever I do it, I am able to focus so much more during that hour, hour and a half, or however long I'm studying. I'm much more focused. It's much easier, like you guys have been talking about, to put things aside. You know, you get a text or whatever from somebody or someone calls you. It's easier to say, no, I'm not going to deal with that right now. I'm focusing on this. And so I think sometimes people feel like they don't have the time. But I kind of feel like you don't have the time not to. When you do do this, you use the time that you have so much more effectively because you're so much more focused. I have a great quote for that, Ben. You should meditate 20 minutes a day. If you're too busy to meditate, you need to meditate an hour. You know, it's like the people Mm -hmm. who say they're too busy totally need it the most. And I'm one of them. Yeah, I unfortunately heard that because people told me that if you think you don't have enough time for meditation, then you need it the most. And I was like, well, I have plenty of time for meditation, so then I won't do it at all. Um, <laughs> I, I, should, I really should get back into it because I, I think for five, the five minutes that it takes to do it, and I can definitely see somebody doing it in the five minutes right before the LSAT starts. I mean, when you do the registration for the LSAT, you have all kinds of time to sit there. And if you had a meditation practice that you had been building up over the course of weeks or whatever before the test, you could just use that time to sit there and kind of practice this same thing of clearing your mind. And then, yeah, I'm sure you would be able to better focus on the actual test. And we we really are only talking about five, ten minutes, right, to get started? Not yet. I mean, start with two minutes. Yeah, and those apps are built to do that, right? Like the steps, the beginning steps are just really short. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they don't start you off with 35 minutes in one sitting. Yeah, cool. Let's talk about this Wall Street Journal article. Let's do it. Arizona and two other schools now accepting the GRE instead of the LSAT. Do Ben and I need to look for another line of work, or what's going on? <laughs> I wouldn't jump ship yet. I, I I don't know what's going on with this, and um, it's interesting. I think law schools are trying to do anything they can to be competitive with applicants, you know, I think that we'll see what happens, that this is a test case. Um, you'll have to also see if the people they let in with GRE scores, you know, have as strong a bar pass rate as the LSAT scores. I think it's a way to circumvent rankings a little bit. I think there's a, a lot going on here. There's some grasping at straws for sure. 
So we're not uh, going to see an immediate move to 100% of schools accepting the GRE. I think that would be bizarre. I mean, think about how slowly law schools incorporate change, right? I mean, every time they try to change something, it takes like 25 years because you got to get rid of the old faculty and the new faculty votes it in. And then you got to wait for that process to happen at every single law school. I I think this is an experiment, much like the two-year programs have been experiments largely that um, haven't necessarily panned out for schools. I think, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, it's also assuming that students will do better on the GRE than they would on the LSAT, which is not necessarily the case. But the nice thing about the GRE is you can take it any time you want to take it. It's not just given four times a year. So that's sort of an interesting aspect of this. Yeah. And, and we'll have to see what scores they're going to take. Like, okay, they'll take Jerry, but you have to be in the top 20% versus at LSAT, they might take the top 40%. I mean, we'll have to see how this really pans out, but I don't think you guys should start teaching GREs quite yet. <laughs> well, I took the GRE. I mean, I, I will say the difference I between... I did too. Yeah. Okay. So the difference between the two, the GRE has math on it. I mean, that's the biggest difference. I might speculate that if someone was good at math, the GRE might be a better test for them to excel on than the LSAT, since the LSAT has no math at all. But for students who are, and I, you know, we see a million um, math-phobic future lawyers, I would think that the GRE is going to be definitely a more difficult test than the LSAT. I, I read today that for some people, for some reason, were saying that the LSAT is perceived as a harder test than the GRE. I, I don't think that's true at all. I think it depends on what you're good at. If you're super strong in verbal stuff, then probably the LSAT's easier than the GRE. Oh, we'll see what happens. I mean, I think this is mostly for people who didn't take the LSAT and want to apply to law school at the last minute. They've taken a GRE or they can sign um, up to take one next week. Do you know what I mean? They don't have to wait till June. Absolutely. Yeah. I, think, I, like I that, see more yeah. of that going on here. Late in the cycle. Oh, I've already taken the GRE so I can apply. Or I can take the GRE next week so I can apply. Yep. Yeah. That makes sense. I do think that the GRE is perceived and probably legitimately so is is easier i mean you're absolutely right it depends on what you're good at but like the gre seems to be easier than the gmat and when they when business school started accepting the gre a lot of people jumped to that because it was presumably easier i mean in in some ways though it's just sort of like does it matter because then the standard like you were saying and just changes like you have to get a higher score on the gre this seems like the best thing for the LSAC to do is to respond by allowing people to take the LSAT whenever, making it automated. It would be fabulous. I mean, everything else has moved that way, but I, I just feel like things move a lot slower in LSAC and ABA land than they do in other places. It's pretty crazy that the LSAT is not on computer and the computer adaptive thing, because, I mean, I took the GMAT and the GRE, both computer adaptive, and that was like 10 years ago. Yeah, and... I took the, I'm pretty sure I took the GRE computer adaptive way more than 10 years ago. I mean, I think it was like 1995 or something, but I could be wrong. It's it's so much amazingly better. You just show up at the test center by yourself anytime, whatever time you scheduled, sit down at the computer two hours, and then it immediately tells you your score as soon as it's done. Yeah, and there's no proctors messing up, right? Because it's all oh, done by computer. Yeah. It's also Fabulous. shorter because... You don't need to give the students as many questions to zero in on their ability because it adapts to your ability. So it's just crazy. Yeah, I'm sure they have lots of reasons why that isn't the case. I remember like touring LSAC uh, back in like, I don't know, let's call it 1999 as an admission director. And they were telling us all the reasons and how complicated it is to curve this test versus other tests. And that's why they can't do it on computer like the GRE. But 
it seems to me in all the years that uh, have passed, they might have figured that out. <laughs> With all the <laughs> zillions of dollars they make off of the test, maybe oh. they could invest some of that and figure it out. I mean, it, it is pretty insane. I, one thought I had was maybe they're making it stressful on purpose. They just want it to be stressful. Like why? Okay, so it's sort of funny you say that. So in California, we're going from a three-day bar, the longest bar exam in the country for lawyers, uh, to um, a two-day bar, which um, you know, uh, prospective bar takers are thrilled about. Um, I took the three-day bar. I also took a two-day bar in another state. It was licensed in two states. And my husband is like furious because when we took the bar in California, he had to do the three days and he thinks everyone should have to sit through the same torture he did. It's like fraternity hazing. And, you know, maybe, maybe not, but I think maybe there's a little of this going on, right? Like um, people who went through it don't see why it should be changed for other people. Sure. Yeah. Uh, that's what people do as they get older, right? Just decide that everything <laughs> should stay exactly the same. <laughs> Um, rapid fire and a couple questions and, and then okay, ready. feel free to bail out if you want. Um, okay. so I got an email from a student. I, we're hearing, of course, everybody's on all the wait lists at uh, this time yep. of year. And, uh, someone had been told that they were on a priority wait list. Yep. They want Georgetown. to know if there's a difference between a priority wait list and an, uh, a regular. Yeah, th there is, there is a difference. Um, so historically, at Georgetown, what they've done is they've had this priority wait list and this regular wait list. And the trends that I've seen through my clients in the past years, I'm not seeing it as much this year, but in past years, is that the really high LSAT people, the people who they felt probably in the end wouldn't go, weren't going to Georgetown, the people who were applying to Georgetown as their safety school, were being put on the priority wait list as sort of a yield protection device for Georgetown to sort of you know, put the brakes on accepting those people and causing their acceptance rates to skyrocket for these people who are never actually going to end up coming because they're going to go to Duke or Michigan or Columbia. Okay. So, so that's a little bit of what's going on here. So for those people in the top priority list who actually really show interest, it would, it was very promising. Okay. But a lot of people get into the Georgetown waitlist, no matter which of the waitlists they're on. All right. So Georgetown waitlist always moves every year. Uh, so let that be a little bit of encouragement. Okay, and at other schools, does priority always have that same meeting meaning, or do you? Oh, well, know? Georgetown is the, the biggest school that has that does it. Um, I don't know what other school you're referring to, so it's hard for me to. This answer. is. Um, it looks like CU, Colorado. Yeah, I haven't seen them use separate wait lists before. I would say don't worry about it. That's a pretty small school. That's not going to be a humongous wait list. I, I mean, I'd it's say, pretty easy to just call your wait list your priority wait list, right? To try. Well, to... I don't think it matters either way, but I think. Yeah, I, I wouldn't focus so much on that word other than, yay, I'm on the priority wait list. Okay, that they'll come to me first. Fine. Um, great. That's a wait list that will move some. That's not a school like Boston College that's waitlisting hundreds of thousands of people this year. Interesting. Speculation on why they're doing that? Um, managing expectations. Protecting yield? Yeah. Oh, oh, no, I think they're managing more expectations. They're not sure they're going to be able to fill their class with the people whose numbers they think they, they want. So they're creating a wait list of people in that next tier just in case. Mm. Interesting. Listener John Gardner emailed about a website, lawschoolnumbers.com. Yeah. I'm not really familiar with this site, uh -huh. but John was asking how reliable those numbers it's self -reported are. self-reported data. Okay. Need I say more? 
that was my gut was just hey this is people talking on the internet well it's not talking really it is just people recording their own um admission results basically but uh you don't know they they tell you what their soft factors are it's all self-reported i know people love this i'm not a fan of the website they once way overcharged me for advertising and i got nothing out of it but that aside that aside i would say that it's self-reported data so it's a guideline it's not the only guideline okay cool Ben, do you have anything else for Anne? Or Anne, is there, is there anything else that you would like to uh, include in the show? Not that I no, can I'm good. think of. People want to get in my newsletter. They can fill out a contact form on my website. That's good to know at lawschoolexpert.com. And then just click the contact us. And I always do free initial consults when I can. So if someone fills that out, especially this time of year, I usually make time to talk with people. Uh, Anne, you've written two really good books. I like both of them. Thank you. Law School Admission Game and Law School Decision Game. You have a another book uh, on the radar? Oh, God, no. Do you hate me? No, why? Oh, my gosh. It's exhausting, the, the writing the books. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it's funny. Usually during my slow season, which is this time of year, I'll write a book. Last year, I said I'm not writing a book, and I did yoga teacher training instead. <laughs> You're going to write a book about yoga? Uh, no, I don't see that happening. Um, but right now I'm just sort of, you know, I'm finding that the law school admission process is becoming more and more of a year round thing for people. Um, both because you have the people who are applying later with February scores that didn't used to happen at all. And also because of the waitlist action and scholarship negotiation action that happens. So I'm actually quite busy right now compared to how I usually am at the end of February. So I don't anticipate, uh, that I'll be writing a book this year, but, uh, the law school admission game is uh, still current and great place to start for anyone who's just diving into the process. Cool. And thanks a lot for joining us. Always great. Hope we'll have you back soon. Thanks for having me, guys. And enjoy the rest of your stay in Costa Rica, uh, Ben. And Nathan, continue to feel good. Yeah, thanks. All right. Thanks. Bye. Ben. Okay, so we got some more issues here. So this is another question from John. He's uh, He says, I will be meeting with my pre-law student group next week talking about self-study strategies. Uh, I will probably just talk about getting in the habit of doing about an hour of real test material every day and taking care of personal matters and your body slash mind. I will cover knowing why you're getting your answers wrong, knowing the question types and what they're asking, and going over uh, videos. Do you have any other tips for self-study? I mean... Boy, that sounds pretty good. Uh, assuming he's talking about 35-minute sections in there, which should be the bulk of it, as we've talked about ad nauseum. I, I would say one thing about study groups is sometimes, depending on the the uh, culture of the group, they can be a waste mm. of time if people like to joke around too much. It's not that it shouldn't be fun or anything like that, but it might be good to sort of address that explicitly if you feel like it's a problem. Yeah, study groups in law school were a gigantic waste of time from what I could see. I just saw people sitting around uh, chatting endlessly in the conference rooms in the library, and it did not seem like they were actually doing any work. So I am a big supporter of study partners, study groups, but yeah, you got to make sure that you're doing the work. Recommended method for study group is simply get together, do a 35-minute section, and then talk about your mistakes and try to figure them out. I think that's that's the way to do it. If you're doing anything other than that, you're probably wasting time. Yeah. 
No, that's a good that's a good point. If you do a thirty five minute section, you're guaranteed to be doing something valuable there, and then now you've gotten questions wrong. That means you'll want to talk about them. It's a good way to start things off. I think sometimes too, these study groups can take a long Chit-chat time to get started. Catch up people and feel the need to yeah. to befriend each other. Yeah, that's I've evolved into doing that in my classes. I mean, my classroom classes now. It's just all we're always doing thirty five minute section, kind of first thing. Like, hey, you may or may not have had time to do, you know, everybody's got different schedules with work mm, and school mm-hmm. and whatever. So it's like, I'll give you homework, but the homework's really going to just be separate from what we're going to do in class. In class, you're going to show up, you're going to do a 35-minute section, um, usually games or logical reasoning. And then we're going to talk about that section. I'll teach you everything you need mm-hmm. to know, but it's going to be based on the work that you just did and the mistakes that you just made. I just think that's a, the most efficient way to learn you know you make those mistakes and then you try to patch them Mm -hmm. up so i do think that's the bulk of what study groups should be working on silly side story just a little anecdote that i like to tell about the Mm -hmm. kind of bullshit hierarchical stuff that you're going to encounter when you go to law school when i was a 1l at uc hastings my section there were 100 people 95 people maybe in my section there were five sections but in my one section there were people who were sending around like notices about a study group, mm-hmm. but because of the constant you know hierarchy and competition and and just nonsense that happens, there was a barrier to entry to get into the study group, which was you had to have had a certain LSAT score, and the certain LSAT score. No way. The, They're still talking about the LSAT. This was one L's, yeah, one one L's first semester and. So get this, it was, it's just, it's so stupid. Yeah, you had to have a certain LSAT score to get into the study group, first of all. So it's already like, you guys are a bunch of douchebags. Second was, the specific score that they picked, you had to have a 167 or higher. <laughs> 167 was the magic number. Which is like, oh, so one of you has a 167. And you've decided that, like, you're going to have a study group, but it has to, you know, we can't have people lower than that in the in the group. How do they even, how do they even, like, what are they going to do, ask for your score report? Come yeah, up? who knows? Maybe they were, at, yeah, requiring some, uh, some, some oh, validation man. of the... Sorry for my reaction, but, like, when I was in law school, I felt like that never, ever came up. And if it ever did, maybe it's just the culture at GW, but, or the people I was studying with or whatever but it was it was like they didn't want to say it unless i don't even remember anyone talking about it but if they did it was sort of like well yeah this is what i got but you know they were just bashful about it you know well it is indelicate right it's like talking about how much money you make or or whatever but no these guys had their had their 167 study group and 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 it was like okay well you guys are forever going to be labeled as douchebags in my mind and also, by the way, I have a study group too, and um, you have to be in my study group. You have to score one seventy nine or higher. So I'm sorry, but you cannot be in my <laughs> study group. Dicks. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, it's just so stupid. Okay, so I think that covers that. Oh, John also asked about. Um, he says most other students are taking LSAT courses, some LSAT course at the university we go to. Have you heard anything about school-run courses? Right now, I assume it sucks, but I won't discourage anyone from taking it. Thanks, big fan, John. Thanks, John. Well, I would say this is true for any test class 
uh, or test prep class, it depends on the instructor and how good that person is. But my guess is that a university is going to not know who to look for or who to hire for this position. I've seen some university classes in my area, in the D.C. area, and I have no idea who the instructor is or how good they are. But I'll tell you this, they don't even list the cost of the course. Um, so you have to sign up and then they'll send you an invoice. It's, it's really weird. bizarre. I, I, don't, I don't really understand how these programs are run or who's behind them, but it sure does not develop any sort of confidence, at least. Yeah, the ones that I've seen, um, the ones that I'm familiar with were around the Bay Area. I don't remember exactly what school, so I won't name any names, but I just, the ones that I've heard of that people are taking are taught by, you know, some guy that's been hanging around the school for a million years teaching classes who has an academic interest and expertise that lie elsewhere who just happened to, oh, right, yeah, that'd be a good service. We could have an LSAT prep class for our students. Sure, let's do that. And, you know, get some kind of crappy LSAT book from off the shelf and then just teach a very mediocre uh, LSAT program. I've seen more bad technique, I think, in, in those. I've seen a couple books and a couple syllabuses and stuff, and it, they just see syllabi. I don't know. And they, <laughs> um, they just seem weak. I don't know. Uh, get what you pay for, unfortunately, in in this area. Just doesn't does not seem like they would be super useful. And it's it's a little bit like an LSAT question too, right? It's like uh, these classes by themselves do no harm. Therefore, can we go ahead and recommend that people take these classes? And yeah. <laughs> you know, the flaw there is well, even if they don't by themselves do harm, they might also do no good. And if they then prevent someone from getting the help that they actually need, then maybe they do do harm. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like taking cilantro yeah. to cure your cancer. The cilantro itself doesn't kill mm -hmm. you, but if it keeps you from doing your chemotherapy and radiation or whatever, then it, it could kill you, the cilantro cure. Yeah. And, um, and then, you know, all that said, I'm sure there are great ones, right? <laughs> there's there's, there's got to be guys out there that are just ge geniuses and that are awesome at teaching their school LSAT class. So if you've heard great things about your school's LSAT program, then maybe it's awesome and go check it out. But I wouldn't make too heavily of an investment in it if you're not sure. And I also would, I really would recommend that people, you know, jump ship on something that doesn't seem to be working, right? If you're not feeling good about it, you need to kind of consider the time and money that you've put into it, maybe a sunk cost, and just decide that you're going to go switch and get whatever help, whatever resources you actually do, you know, that, that are going to work for you. Yeah, for sure. Okie doke. Cameron wants to narrow the gap on his performance on reading comprehension passages Cameron says, I was wondering if you could address the following question regarding reading comprehension. I seem to have significant discrepancies in my scores on reading comprehension based on the subject matter of the passage. Recently, I've gotten perfect on reading comprehension sections or passages with uh, law, humanities, and diversity, while on a subsequent reading comprehension section with two passages on science and technology, I got eight questions wrong. I'm majoring in economics, and I do feel more comfortable while reading social science passages. 
but the discrepancy is starting to become very large. Is there a way to close this gap? Best, Cameron. So at first, I have to admit, I'm a little confused here because I would say every reading comp section that I have seen, or at least 99% of them, are going to have some sort of natural sciences passage in there. I'm assuming that's what he's referring to when he says science slash tech. And so I'm not sure why he feels like these sections were hard or he got more wrong on them because of the natural sciences passage or passages in that section versus another section which he did better on. Do you follow what I'm saying here? I think you're saying a couple things. I mean, one is he's labeling these passages, right? I mean, he's deciding that this pa- that this that this uh, section had two science and technology passages, right? He has he has put science and technology label onto these two. It does not say that at the top of the passage. Yeah, it's just a passage, mm-hmm. and he's decided that it's about science and technology. So I think necessarily this is a little bit him you know, him perceiving it in that way. I think that that can frequently happen just because they put some confusing, um, science-y sounding terminology in the very beginning of the passage. Sure. Mm-hmm. And you, and then, I mean, I think they're doing that kind of on purpose to see if you're going to get intimidated by, by these words. Yeah. The other thing that I think is probably happening here is it clearly seems to me like small sample, Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, he's saying on, on on these sections, I did great. But then look at this one section over here. And there were two science and technology and I got eight questions wrong. And it's like, well, OK, you can decide that that means you suck at science and technology passages. Or you can chalk it up to what it is, which is a data point. And, you know, so yeah. show me the other five sections where the same thing happened. And I doubt that that I doubt it even will happen again. I doubt you'll find another section where you think there are exactly two science and technology passages. I, I think you'll probably not find many other sections that don't have at least one science and technology passage. Yeah. Um, I don't know. What else do we have to say about that? Well, no, I think that's a really good point. I mean, there certainly could be something difficult about science and technology passages for him, but like a lot of people, they take two tests. On both of those tests, they do worse on the first logical reasoning section. And so then they say, I always do horrible on the first LR section, and I need to figure out how to do better at the beginning. And it's sort of like, well, we have two data points here. You could take a lot of tests, and it may have nothing to do with the fact that the section was first. So anyways, back to what he's saying Um, If he really is struggling with what I would call natural sciences, natural science passages, and that's if he's really struggling with them, my only suggestion would be to save it for the end if it's like the third passage. So if it's the first or second, it's probably going to be easier anyways because the first passages tend to be a little bit easier and just plow ahead. But if you read the first sentence of the third passage and you're like, Oh no, it's talking about spiders. Lichenometry. Yeah. yeah. And you're like, right. okay, for whatever reason, I shouldn't be stressed about these, but I am. So just don't do it right then. Do the last one, then come back to it. Do the stuff that you feel better about so that at least you're doing yeah. it at the end. In terms of improving over time, 
I mean, one thing that he can do, again, this is if this is really his struggle area, is you can go to Cambridge LSAT, I think. I think they're still operating, and download a bunch of natural science passages and just do a bunch of them until you realize, okay, these are actually kind of the same as everything else. I just think I'm being intimidated by the content. I've even heard some people say that with the natural science passages, they feel intimidated by the passage, but they find the questions themselves to be a little bit easier than some of the passages that they felt good about. Like maybe they felt good about the humanities passage. They understood it, but the questions were harder because they were more nuanced. Whereas in the natural sciences passages, the questions are easier. This is not always the case. They're just people find that this might be the case because they <laughs> they know that they probably lost half the test takers just through intimidation. Yeah. Oh, I don't know these words. In my experience, that seems to be a huge part of it. They're 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 just intimidated, and they see lichenometry, and it you know it's like the way that passage goes, right? It's like. Is it even the first word of the passage? Nah, I don't know. It's in the first couple sentences, but it mentions lichenometry, and you're like, "What?" Yeah. And and I think people's brains just shut off. But then it immediately says the definition of lichenometry, which is you know using the growth of lichens on a rock to to judge the the age of things or something like that, right? It's 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 simple and yeah. mundane, but the word lichenometry is intimidating. And you're like, I don't know that word. This is some science shit. I'm out of here. And that, that's, that's you know, you just have to practice enough to overcome that. Because I think that you'll realize that these, they, they seem like they're science-y passages. But the LSAT is set up so that you can have any major and do well on the LSAT. You can absolutely be a, an English, you know, or whatever humanities major and they can be talking about astrophysics in the reading comprehension passage, and you can read the passage and understand what they're talking about and answer the questions correctly. There's yeah. no reason, there's no, you don't have to suck at the science and technology passages. Just like I don't have to suck at the poetry passages. I mean, they start talking about poetry or like some 18th century literature, and I'm like, I do not give a shit about any of this. I don't know any of the names that you're talking about. I don't know any of these schools of thought that you're talking about. I have no interest in this. But okay, I you know, if I if I force myself, I can still read the passage, understand it and answer the questions correctly. Yeah. No, I agree completely. I mean, all the information has to be provided there for them to uh, create the questions. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to defend their answers. They'll get sued. If, if, if you can't figure them out, if it is impossible, they would get sued, right? If there's not a right answer, they would get sued. So it's yeah. like the, the test, you have to trust that the test is valid while you're doing the test. And, and it's not as hard as you think it is. You just have to slow down and figure it out. By the way, you talked about the lichenometry one. I've talked about that in class so many times. And it's funny because even now as we're talking about it, I still don't know what lichens are. I've never looked on the internet and tried to figure out what they are. But I get the idea that there's some sort of moss or some sort of growth that's growing on rocks. And that's all you need to know. It doesn't doesn't matter that I don't have an image in my mind of what a lichen really is. I'm sure listeners will will write in about this, but a lichen is actually a symbiotic creature. It's uh, two things. I think it's a fungus. Isn't this from a, like another reading comp passage? It talks about how they're like 
algae or something and fungi? Or I think I learned this in high school sometime. I, I don't know why. High school biology. I feel like there's another reading book passage that talks about this probably is they sometimes echo things that people have learned in high school you know though though i don't know why but i think that a lichen is it's definitely a symbiotic creature i think it's um half fungus and what else did you just say fungus and uh, oh fun- algae? i think it's uh, yeah algae and fungus that could totally together. be i was gonna say moss and well, i don't know anyway it's definitely a symbiotic creature that grows exceptionally slowly and yeah you can use it to judge when an earthquake happened or something yeah and the thing is it does like i think some people still get turned off by the definition like you're saying they do define these things and they're like well i still don't like know what that is it's like i don't know what that is it doesn't matter they've given you enough information to then figure out what the answer to the question is if there's a big scary science word they either will explicitly define it for you or it does not matter the definition of the word sometimes does not matter it's just like a name, basically. Yeah. Right? A name, like when they say Finkelstein, you know, Professor Finkelstein, you don't have to, that doesn't have any meaning. It's just a label. It's Professor Finkelstein. Mm-hmm. And then we can read what else he's about. We all know that. We don't need to be like, whoa, that's a big scary word. Ooh. You know, yeah. I'm turning off my brain now. So lichenometry is the same way. They'll, they'll, if they, if you need to know, they'll tell you what it means. Or they'll give you context so that you can figure it out. Or it might not even matter, and they could just have thrown that word in there to see if you'll give up. Yeah. The LSAT is like that in a lot of ways on a lot of different sections. It's like, hey, we're going to see how hard you can work. We're going to see how much you can focus. Did you notice that it's all sunny outside, and you could go play outside if you wanted in your mind, right? You, You know, you could turn off your brain, and you could just be running through the sunshine outside, Mm-hmm. Um, and we're, cause we're going to talk about lichenometry and, you know, do you want to, do you want to give up? Do you want to, you know, how, how much of this, how bad do you really want this? Cause we're going to be talking yeah. about lichenometry in a, in a <laughs> indoors, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just, there's free beer outside. Do you want it? Go, Yeah. you know, you can go anytime and we're going to give you, I think the test gives you multiple opportunities to, to give up. Mm-hmm. And you just have to decide, no, I really want this, and I, I'm I, I'm not going to take your invitation to shut off my brain. I'm going to work through this and figure it out. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, thanks, Cameron, for writing in. I think more data is needed, and maybe change your mindset about the science technology passages and just decide that they're not as hard as maybe you've been thinking they are. Let's talk a little bit about... Um, accommodations we've had a couple emails flying around about accommodations you want to just maybe sum up this issue yeah um i guess this is just for people who are getting time and a half and it seems that maybe that the number of people out there getting time and a half is increasing so who knows but in any case uh when you do get time and a half that means you're going to get 53 minutes You're going to have four sections. You're not going to have an experimental section. You, in most cases, are at least, I mean, everyone can get a different, I guess, specific accommodation from from LSAC. But I think the standard here, when you get time and a half, is to have no breaks uh, between the sections. But what you will do is you will do two sections, take a 15-minute break, and then two more sections, or... You will do three sections, a 15-minute break, and then the fourth section. 
So it's, this is all based on small samples, small like reports that we've gotten from from students, right? Yeah, so one student, they had two sections and then the break and then two more sections and another student had three sections, the break and then the last section. So and and they do still have a writing sample, right? I'm assuming they do. I'm yeah. assuming that they do. So then that uh, makes it a little more sensible that a proctor could decide you're going to do three sections, then a break, then section four, and the writing sample. It's not like totally ridiculous. Because otherwise, when I first heard that, like, wait, what? A proctor's, you're doing three sections, then a break, then one section? That just doesn't make any sense, right? Yeah, I think, well, so it sounds like the proctor doesn't decide. But based on the small sample we have here, because one of the students did take the test twice, and so what happened the first time was they opened their test book and there was no first section. It just said like the number two was on the top of their page, right? And oh, they're like, oh, because they had taken it from an experimental test, you know? Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. They had so I guess for section their one test was the experimental section. Yeah, and it was just gone. And so they're like, wait a sec, Proctor, what's going on here? And they're like, oh, I don't know. And so I don't know that the proctors necessarily know what's going on. But so then they did section two and section three, and then the break was after that. Whereas for the other person, I think their experimental had been either sections four or five. And that's why they ended up doing one, two, three, and then a break. So it sounds like it, when you have the break depends on when your experimental was, which is ultimately been oh, removed. But um, so no matter what, it's going to come after the third section, but that may be only two sections if your experimental had been at the beginning. Of course, it's not there. So it's I not see. like you even have an experimental section, but at least for the test that you were given. Sure. It seems to me that it, it seems clear that the proctors are highly variable between tests and between facilities. And if you're taking an accommodated test, you're actually in a different room with a different proctor, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be a different day sometimes or all the time. Anyway, the proctors already, you know, they only work four days a year as LSAT proctors. And so they are not full-time trained employees of the LSAC. I mean, they are yeah. kind of random people following instructions from what I've seen yeah, or from what I've heard. The proctors frequently are changing the rules in the testing center Don't slash don't know what's going on, right? Some proctors yeah. are going to be super crazy about if you've got a digital display on your watch, we're kicking you out of the test. Other proctors are going to be like, ah, put it in your pocket. Oh, for sure. And and the thing that's so weird about it is it seems like a lot of these proctors aren't reading the instructions. And then when something comes up, like you said, it just comes down to their personality, right? Like, are they, oh, sure, seems fine. Let's go for it. Because I know I've heard of students who have their cell phones in the test room. And I'm thinking, wow, I just know that in other places that would be a violation right away. Right, like right, written up for <laughs> misconduct. For, yeah. for for having it at the... T- yeah, it, it depends, right? I mean, I, I guess that's human nature, and you're going to find police officers and the like who are similarly different, right? It's going to be by the book, and there's going to be, ah, well, it's okay, you're, you're okay. It sounds like they're making mistakes slash not knowing what, what they're doing. You know, I would love to have an LSAT proctor on the show. That would be awesome, wouldn't it? Yeah. To just talk to him about... If anybody out there knows an LSAT proctor or has any familiarity with what it's like to be an LSAT proctor, we would love to get an LSAT proctor on the show and just um, ask him about what the what the whole life is like of being a proctor. Because it's got to just be like 
normal people who work one day every few months as an LSAT proctor. Yeah. I can't see what else they're doing for the, you know. I've heard anecdotally that sometimes like a school will be responsible for administering the test, like uh, Georgetown or whatever. And someone gets slated with that responsibility, like the the, de- the person who's over whatever department. And then they say, well, I want this person to take care of it because it's just like this job that they have to do on the weekend. And mm-hmm. I think sometimes those people go and they get like other teachers from the school. They're like, hey, I need you to come in this weekend and we're proctoring this test. It's like a little perk potentially like, oh, and you get paid $20 an hour and all you have to do is sit there. Probably. Yeah. yeah. Who knows? I, I mean, I don't know how it's being run, but it definitely seems like you have a whole gamut of people who are doing this all the time. And then you have other people who are just roped in for the weekend and they don't know what's going on. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, okay. I think we have covered all of our agenda items. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. Okay. So mm-hmm. do you want to, maybe I'll just ask you a couple of questions. So sure. Um, yeah. What you have a class coming up, uh, in DC starting when? So the next class starts on March 12th, okay, and that's the 100-hour uh, class. So I have two classes. I have a 100-hour class, and I have a 40-hour class, Okay, and most people take the longer class. The 40-hour class covers everything that the 100-hour class does. It's just we move a lot faster because we have to fit it all in, and so usually I tell people that if they're feeling pretty good about the test or if they feel like they're kind of a fast learner or a natural test taker, then that 40-hour class would probably make more sense because a lot of people in that class are pretty sharp and they move pretty quickly. Okay. Um, but that's not to say that if people feel like they're pretty good at the test, they shouldn't take the longer class. Uh, most people take that class. It's just that the 40-hour class moves pretty fast. So those are the two classes. March 12th, you said, in D.C.? Yeah, so the 100-hour class starts on March 12th, and that goes all the way up to the June test. And then there's the 40-hour class, which starts in April, and I think it's like April 9th or something. Okay. And then how does private tutoring work with you? So private tutoring is different for everyone. I'm I'm guessing it's probably the same for you. Like, I have packages, 8 hours, 16 hours, 24 hours even. It just it, – people contact me. We talk for free at the beginning just sort of so I get to know them and then based on whatever they're struggling with or whatever they need whether they're just starting out or whether they're at the very end of their preparation um, we figure out how many hours they're likely to need sometimes it comes down to how many they can afford maybe Mm -hmm. they need more but they say hey this is all I can do and then from there we meet and a lot of times people want to know what we do when we talk and I imagine it's the same for you, but it's diff- it's different every time. They go home and they do stuff. They come back and they start talk. We start talking about what they did, what they got wrong, what they were thinking about, and then based on that conversation, we figure out what more they need to do. And so it changes from week to week. But that's I think the point of private tutoring is to give someone a very specific, personal, you know, advice for them that's based on yeah. whatever they're doing. It's consultative, right? It, and, and it's, for me, I think it's meant for people who already have taken a class in most cases or at least read a book or took a practice test and scored 160-something on the first test. 
Now that's the student that I would really like to work with for private tutoring. I, 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 I like to, and I mean, not, not, that's not to say that I would turn away students who haven't taken a class or, you know, sometimes your schedule won't permit you to take a class, um, or, you know, read a book or whatever, but I feel like I can help most the people who are already doing pretty well and have the fundamentals down in that one-on-one form. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, when people come and they're sort of oscillating between the class or private tutoring and they haven't done anything before, I say, look, in the class, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff, but it's going to be a hundred times cheaper because you're sitting in a class with a bunch of other people. You'll be able to get all these fundamentals down before sort of consuming time with me. But some people, you know, they say, hey, class classes don't work as effectively for me. Or if, And if they have the money, honestly, that's kind of another factor. Sure, it- some people will say, hey. Right. It's a luxury. And if you've got the money to afford it, then, oh, I don't want, you know, I don't want to sit and listen to other people ask questions. I want to ask all the questions. And, you know, it is for sure the fastest way to improve. Yeah. You know, you're you're with a consultant, me or you, who know everything about or, you know, as much as anyone on the planet knows about the LSAT. And we've got years of teaching experience and you can come to us and you ask us questions whatever the things that are bothering you and we help you to understand them just immediately. Yeah. In a class, of course, there's 20 other people there or however many other people there and you end up having to kind of share time. Yeah. How do people get in touch with you, Ben, if they want to get started with one of your classes or tutoring? So uh, the best place to start is probably just strategyprep.com. The class schedules are all there. The tutoring packages are all listed there. You can always email me too, just at ben at strategyprep.com. But if you go there, you can, a lot of times, all the questions that you might have are usually answered. So I'm I'm happy to talk to anybody and people can call me too, but uh, that might be uh, the, the best place to start. And your phone number, I guess, is on your website? Yeah, so the phone number is 202-680-4561 or... 844 the LSAT. So either one of those work. Cool. And you said you do a free initial consultation for tutoring, right? You'll you'll talk to people on the phone and That's try right. to sort I, them through their options. Yeah, and that, that goes for people too who are interested in the class. I'm happy to talk to anybody and just kind of figure out what direct where they're at and what direction they want to go, you know, because everyone's in a different place. If you're just starting out, then you're pretty similar than most people, but if you've been doing some stuff or if you feel pretty good about test taking, then I'm happy to talk and just say, hey, look, this is probably what you should do. Great. And you've got students now uh, on Skype and just around the world, right? So don't feel like you're only going to be able to work with you in D.C. Yeah. In fact, a lot of people who I work with in D.C., we start in person, but it's sort of like, well, we could meet on Skype and then you don't have to come down here to the office. <laughs> and so some people just end up meeting on Skype all the time. So it's, it's, I think there's a hesitation. I don't know if you feel this, but sometimes I feel like people are hesitant about doing things on Skype, but I don't feel like there's any difference between Skype and meeting in person. Well, I hesitated, you know, to start using Skype with my students because it was like, whoa, that's scary. And, you know, it's just different. It's different and scary. But once you do it, like once you realize, oh shit, wait a minute, this is way better. I'm, I'm actually probably making more eye contact with my Skype students than I do with my in-person students. 
it's like you're just sitting there face to face, you know, chatting. You're you're mm-hmm. right next to each other. It's super comfortable because everybody's in their own house and you know you got all your own amenities i got my you know pajama pants on and i'm just like able to to (laughs) relax and um and and enjoy the conversation but it also right i have students in now i have students in oakland or san mateo or somewhere else around the bay area when i'm in san francisco and it's like you you really you're gonna drive into san francisco and park in my neighborhood and it's i got pretty easy parking around west portal where i live but like that's what we're gonna do you're gonna so it's gonna be an hour for you to get to me and an hour for you to get home and but why wouldn't we just do this on skype and you could study for that same time yeah yeah same thing with my online class versus my my in-person class at this point where it's like especially people that live like south of the peninsula, it's really hard to get up north to San Francisco during rush hour. And then um, if people are like, hey, should I do the online class or should I do the in-person class? I just can't help but say, you know, you're going to save yourself 30 hours worth of commuting time or yeah. more if you take this, if you do the, the online version. So interesting. Yeah, that reminds me, by the way, so all my live classes are recorded. So I record every lesson and then I post it online the next day. And a number of students have actually, I I don't, I haven't advertised this like uh, just blatantly and out there, but I guess now I sort of am, but it seems to be a thing where people contact me and they say, Hey, look, I can't come to half the class because I'm in California or wherever, somewhere else, or I'm going to China, crazy places. And I say, Hey, well, every day, then we have class the next day the class the lesson is recorded online like you can watch it and so some people are actually now taking the class entirely remotely it's not a it's not a big chunk of the class but some people no i've done that too i mean i've dabbled with recording stuff a little bit and it's immediately people people stop coming to class because they're like oh i can just watch it from home great and then it makes me think well wait okay so we really need to just make this like a live slash online program right i mean the mm-hmm. the the th- I, for me i think the things are going to merge into maybe just one product where like if you if you're in my class there's going to be live and there's going to be online the online stuff by the way is you know can also just be pre-recorded resources oh you're going to miss well you know go watch these old classes that are the exact same thing is there anything else you wanted to add ben that's it i also wanted to say i've just listed a Fox LSAT boot camp class, April 23 and 24. That's going to be in Los Angeles. So it's like all day Saturday, all day Sunday. Uh, isn't that fun? Uh, LSAT class in LA. So you can sign up for that on my website if you're so inclined. FoxLSAT.com. I feel like kind of a douche doing this, but it's come to my attention that people have no idea what kind of services I offer. And even people who listen to the podcast sometimes tell me, hey, you know, you should write a book. Or uh, you should have an online class, and um, I have five books, and I do have an online class, and so I just want people to know about it. So here's all the stuff that I've got going on, and uh, hopefully some of it will help you. By the way, the easiest thing you can do is just call me, 415-518-0630, and I will love to talk you through all your options. Again, um, 415-518-0630. Give me a call. Frequently, it's easiest for you to just call me and we can talk through all the options. I have classroom classes in San Francisco year-round. Uh, they're kind of just starting all the time. 
They're 50-hour courses. The next one starts March 29th. You can take one 50-hour course with me where we'll do the odd tests, and then you can take another 50-hour course with me if you'd like where we'll do the even-numbered tests. So you can do either the odds or the evens or both the odds and the evens. You have a choice of doing a 50-hour course or two of them in a row would be the 100-hour course. I also have an on-demand online course. There's 50-something hours of video. There's 19 full practice tests. It includes all five of my LSAT books. There's a sixth book that's coming out soon. That's the Fox LSAT Logic Games Playbook, and uh, hopefully we'll be announcing that sometime in March. I do private tutoring in person in San Francisco and Los Angeles, depending where I am, and also uh, private tutoring via Skype works awesome. So even people who live in San Francisco will meet with me on Skype, even when I'm in San Francisco, just to save the time traveling across town, parking, all those hassles. But yeah, no matter where you are, I can always meet with you via Skype. And it really works amazing for LSAT tutoring, particularly for logical reasoning. Please call me anytime. Uh, you can also go to my website, foxlsat.com, and you can learn about my tutoring, my in-person classes, my books, uh, and my on-demand LSAT course. So yeah, no excuses. You know all my products. Reach out to me anytime. I'd love to help. Love to talk to you anytime.